Welcome to the Medical Republic podcast. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. It's Friday the 12th of June. And we're here today to bring you updates on the COVID-19 crisis and have a little bit of a chat about what happened this week and what you might have missed out on in the news cycle. So before we get to those clinical updates, I thought we'd talk briefly about an event that we put on this week uh, where Sophie Scott from the ABC, Dr. Norman Swan, Melissa Davey from The Guardian um, and a few others came on uh, a webinar that was hosted by the Medical Republic and Australian Skeptics to share some of their experiences about health reporting during COVID-19. And we got some really great feedback from this webinar. Um, I think it really got to some of the heart of the issues that we're having as a society around bad research getting published, experts not really having all the answers uh, for this very new disease and some treatments being peddled without much evidence. Um, Bianca, you very kindly moderated this session for us. What struck you as some of the interesting takeaways? Well, I mean, first of all, those speakers were all incredibly generous um, and very open about their practice and what they do and how they do it. Um, you know, even to the extent of Melissa Davey at one point actually offering to share her contact list with people, her COVID-19 contact list, which was, you know, gobsmacking because journalists used to kind of hoard those like a dragon hoards gold. So, um, th- I mean, there were so many things that really struck me from that conversation. And um, one thing that I think all three of them said was, that it's really important um, as a health journalist to not to believe that you are right, but to be always trying to prove that you are wrong in terms of as a you know never never assume that you've got the story right and always look for those flaws, look for something you might have got wrong and and it does it really stuck with me because I think sometimes it is possible to get a little bit too comfortable with my confident as you know my my gut feelings and my confidence and sometimes and that's when mistakes are made because I assume that. I know enough. And generally speaking, I don't. Dr. Norman Swan, one of the panellists, had something to say on that. Particularly with investigative journalism in health, um, what journalism, journalism at its core has a scientific method. So if you're doing an investigative story, you don't spend your time trying to prove your theory. You spend your time trying to find every way that your story could be wrong. And you, you, you're away. Everybody will talk about this. You know, Melissa, Sophie, uh, we can talk about this. You wake up in the middle of the night and you're doing an investigative story. Where, how could this be wrong? I can't possibly be right. And you try and disprove it. And I think that having some understanding of how medical journalism happens is actually really good context for GPs um, who really don't know who or what to believe right now. Um, And some of the stuff from Melissa Davies, one of the panellists, about even scientists not knowing much about COVID-19 was really useful to hear, I thought. Yeah, it's interesting that notion that we take as gospel what an expert says. And I mean, it's a fundamental part of health journalism is you talk to the experts because we are journalists. We're not medical experts. We're not clinicians. We're not researchers. But that doesn't mean that the experts always are right. And, you know, we're, we're, we're all human. And, I, you know, I've certainly had interviews over the course of my career where, you know, I've kind of got off the phone and then looked at the paper and looked and thought about what the conversation and thought, I don't think they're right. I think they might be wrong. And I had an interview the other day, which wasn't a medical one. It was a science st- environment story. And, and I kind of got off the phone and I thought, I I think they're missing something. I think that I don't actually think they're right. And it's not that they're wrong, but it was, you know, I think it's very possible to kind of get, you know, to become so expert that you you kind of almost become a bit blinkered um, about what else is out there. And, you know, it's a very human thing when you are so passionate about something. But, um, but yeah, and this is part of the challenge of being a health journalist is that we do 
use experts as uh, you know these kind of reliable sort of sources of information. But at the same time, we have to always be interrogating what experts say as much as we interrogate, you know, the the studies themselves. It's you know nothing should ever be assumed to be correct. And I think if anything, the you know the big saga of the hydroxychloroquine studies really demonstrates that painfully clearly that. That was a spectacularly wrong uh, situation that, um, you know, we, so many of us, myself included, just sort of reported that paper because it's in the Lancet and, you know, so you just assume it's been vetted and peer-reviewed and checked and take someone like Melissa Davey to actually dig deeper and go, well, hang on, there's something not quite right here. Yeah, and I think we've all had similar experiences there. I mean, my alarm bells go off during this pandemic the second that anyone either introduces themselves or a journalist introduces them as a COVID-19 expert. It's almost comical in the current situation that we're in because no one understands this virus and all of its different presentations and no one knows. There are so many unknowns that remain, so it's very hard to call yourself an expert. And I think that uh, Melissa Davey in the webinar the other night made this point very clear. There's no experts in this particular virus. There are experts in coronavirus and viruses and and that kind of thing, and they're very useful. But because there is so much that's novel about it, there are different views even in the same field. So it's not good enough to have one epidemiologist you rely on or, you know, one virologist. Um, You really need to to have a good um, mix There are those people, for example, when it comes to modelling, okay, how many Australians are going to get this virus, die from this virus. I was quite shocked at how many journalists reported the doomsday scenarios without context, without explaining how modelling works, without going to people um, just as qualified on the other end of the spectrum who um, were playing it down a little bit. And, you know, we don't know who's right or wrong. Um, we just have a duty to, to know the range of views. Another issue was the school's closures, you know. Um, it's like Norman was saying about if you, with the catalyst study, if you have something you want to report, it's very easy to find evidence supporting that. It's very easy to find evidence that we should ship close schools tomorrow and keep them shut. But there were actually a lot of virologists and epidemiologists saying to me, it's not as simple as that and here's why. And some of that nuance got lost in, in the discussion. And to even suggest that there are some reasons why schools might remain open became suddenly it meant that you wanted teachers to die. You know, it was just ridiculous. Um, another thing that I loved that came out of the uh, session the other night, and uh, which it would have been really interesting to know what some of the PR folk in the audience, because I know that the webinar was attended by a mix of journalists and comms people and PR folk, but Norman said, uh, Norman Swan from the ABC basically said he just bins every press release, um, particularly that he get, ones that he gets from um, public relations companies. And, yeah, I, I very, very rarely read a press release, even when it's a press release that accompanies a scientific paper, because so often it's it just stretches things a little bit like you know the good the good um kind of science comms and medical comms people don't do that and they have to walk a very fine line in not overstating it but i've had some absolute clangers where you read the press release and then you read the study and you go are we even talking about the same bit of data here so i when he said that about press releases i went i thought yeah that's uh that's definitely relatable um i actually heard some feedback from some pr people who were in the audience and they found it very enlightening. <laughs> you can see why some of them wanted, wanted to attend a session with, that was essentially for journalists because um, it gives them some insight into why we do not respond to certain types of approaches. Um, and uh, the comment that Dr. Norman Swan made about journals publishing garbage at the moment 
actually made me laugh out loud. It was so funny. And here's him talking about that. The risk is that you, because it's the New England Journal of Medicine, you, 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 it, it must be right. I mean, they, they published um, complete garbage last week on a prevention trial in hydroxychloroquine. And another thing that came out of the discussion the other night was Sophie Scott from the ABC basically told the audience that you need to know when to let things go uh, and basically kill your darlings and not cover something. I know that it was flagged that you basically shouldn't trust anything that claims to be a world-first study or if you can't find adequate information. Here's what she had to say. It, it takes effort and time to, to not only cover the story and interview the people who have done the work, but then to, on top of that, find someone else that you can trust who had nothing to do with the study, who can say what they thought of it. But um, that will be the difference. And if they say the story's bullshit and the study's crap, then you need to kill it. Um, you need to kill it off. So, yeah, I just think be have your bullshit radar up very, very high because you, you probably get more press releases of, Miracle cures and well-first and breakthroughs and um, and most of them are not worth covering. Okay, so moving along to our clinical updates now, uh, Bianca, what's been happening? Well, the epic cluster snafu of the uh, hydroxychloroquine data scandal continues to unfold, thanks in a large part to the uh, excellent journalistic work by Melissa Davey and her colleagues at The Guardian. So uh, I can imagine that The Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine are probably doing some serious soul-searching right now because this really has been the biggest retraction since the Andrew Wakefield anti-vaccine fraud which uh, hit the Lancet, I think, probably 30 years ago now, and we all know how well that turned out. But what's interesting is that um, so there have also been some other developments in the hydroxychloroquine space. Um, So just to recap, hydroxychloroquine, it's normally an um, anti-malarial drug. It's got a range of other medical uses, and it's been investigated as a potential treatment for for COVID-19 infection. It's the one that Trump touted and all these people are pushing it as like the miracle cure and the data is highly questionable but anyway uh, much of the data so far had been observational so naturally these are now being investigated in randomized controlled trials the UK had launched a big uh, or reasonable size randomized controlled trial they um, put out some very preliminary findings that suggested there was no benefits in terms of 28-day mortality. Um, They haven't actually published the study or the data yet. I think it was probably a press release or some kind of uh, notice that they put out. So Australia does also have its own hydroxychloroquine study that is currently recruiting called the ASCOT trial. They um, put out their own announcement after the the, um, UK trial, the recovery trial is the name of the UK trial. So the ASCOT trial people in Australia said, yes, we've seen the data, we've seen the news, we are still going ahead because the Australian trial takes a slightly different approach in terms of patient selection. They're being much more careful in terms of monitoring for potential um, new ventricular arrhythmias, which is one of the side effects that's being um, of major concern with hydroxychloroquine. So, uh, you know, and they did point out quite rightly that in the spirit of evidence-based medicine, one study alone does not make for proof that we really need to be looking at this from multiple angles because it may be that there are groups of patients, perhaps with more severe disease, perhaps, um, you know, if you give it to them earlier in disease course, there may be benefits. So, you know, they're they're quite, I think, quite right in that um, it's not so dire that it should be completely abandoned, but it will be very interesting to see what the data is that gets published from the recovery trial in the UK and now from ASCOT when it's finished. 
So the food industry, Bianca, also got a little bit of a talking to this week. Uh, What was all of that about? Well, yeah, there was an editorial in the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, which basically pointed the finger at the food industry as being obviously a major contributor to the obesity pandemic, which in turn has been a major contributor to the severity and um, morbidity and mortality from COVID-19. So the um, the authors were from uh, Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry, and they basically said this, you know, the obesity pandemic is the result of us living in these obesogenic environments where it's very difficult not to overconsume calories. You know, the global food industry really focuses on producing and promoting, um, you know, these cheap sugar-laden um, ultra-processed foods that they've got lots of sugar and salt and saturated fat, um, but you only, you know, briefly get filled up by them. And uh, and so this has all been linked to um, overweight and obesity. And then there's also numerous studies now linking overweight and obesity to more severe COVID-19 and greater mortality from, from the disease. So it was, um, it was I think, a, a timely dig uh, and a timely finger point at the industry. And it certainly um, goes to show that, I mean, obviously, not just the kind of um, metabolic diseases that have come from this obesogenic environment, but now the relationship between that obesogenic environment and potentially greater um, morbidity and mortality from infectious disease, which I think is, and again, not an expert, but this probably must be one of the first times that 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 relationship has kind of been um, pointed to or has been highlighted. I, I mean, maybe there are other infectious diseases where you know, uh, where overweight and obesity are also associated with greater mortality. I'm not sure, but but certainly with COVID-19, it's it's sort of fairly stark. So that, that was an interesting, interesting argument. Hmm, very interesting. Um, and I saw there were some more resources for GPs coming out as well. Yeah, the RBC GPs have been doing a great job in helping GPs to do things uh, more quickly and more easily. And this one, um, there's a couple of resources that came out this week. So for example, for those of you who are getting really, really sick of writing COVID-19 medical clearance letters for your patients to give their employers, the RACGP has now provided a form letter, which is on the RACGP website. Um, so it kind of plug and play, which should save a lot of time. Um, and they've also just put out some guidance on how to do telehealth consultations with um, patients who, for whom English is not their first language, where they may need a, an interpreter because, you know, bringing an interpreter into a telehealth consultation obviously is a new um, skill set or a new, uh, there's a whole range of new things that need to be uh, learned to do that. So the RACGP has very helpfully provided some guidance on how to do that. And now with restrictions looking like they're easing further, I know that a lot of GPs will love having a resource like that because with more people going back to the office, I can only imagine how frustrating it would be to have to fill out all that paperwork for the office worker that comes in with probably no symptoms at all and yet still requires a sign-off. Yeah, absolutely. And and particularly, I think anyone working in healthcare or aged care at the moment, um, it's going to be very important. Although the thing I wonder about that is, you know, you could certify somebody one day, but then, I mean, they could get infected the next day. So yeah, anyway, but that's a whole other can of worms. Absolutely. And Going back to that idea of restrictions easing even more this weekend in some states, it's also a timely reminder of how much those lockdown laws and them being so strict across Australia have potentially saved millions of lives here, the same which can't be said for some of our overseas neighbouring countries. Uh, What do we know about this, Bianca? Yeah, so this was um, uh, a study published in Nature which looked at 
um, the impact of non-pharmaceutical interventions uh, in six countries. So it was China, South Korea, Italy, Iran, France, and the United States. And um, it was interesting, they, they used methods, so they were trying to work out the impact of these restrictions, which ranged from things like closing libraries, closing schools, you know, social dis- implementing physical distancing requirements, mask wearing, um, or, you know, stay at a shelter in place, all of those kind of interventions. And they used a, a model um, or methods that are normally used to measure the impact of policies on economic growth, but they were applying this instead to, uh, to, cont- to infection rates and um, mortality. And they concluded that because um, they, they worked out that at the start of the pandemic, before all of these interventions were implemented, infection rates were growing at around 38% per day, which is terrifyingly fast. Um, and so the lockdowns in these six countries, which were you know done with varying degrees of success, they calculated that they may have avoided or delayed around 62 million confirmed infections. And we don't necessarily know the infection fatality rate I mean, it, it varies obviously widely, but I mean, that still would have to be millions of, of lives. Um, and in, there was actually a second study, um, which was also in nature, which looked at the effect of these interventions just in Europe. And it calculated that these lockdowns may have averted around 3.1 million deaths in this pandemic. So, you know, for all of these complaints about, oh, I don't like being in lockdown and the restrictions, when you look at the numbers, I mean, these are numbers that equivalent to the, you know, the lives lost in world wars. And we've managed to avoid those deaths simply by giving up the privileges of, you know, relatively free movement. I mean, we, we haven't been put in prison. We haven't, you know, we haven't lost so many of our civil liberties. We've, it just means that we've stayed at home. We've not gone out. But, you know, to, to think that we have saved, you know, the, the equivalent number of lives that would have been lost probably in both world wars, uh, I think is quite mind-blowing um, and it shows what we can do when we actually, you know, put aside our own interests for the uh, for the greater good, which is my, my favourite expression. Yeah, goodness. I definitely wake up every day here and look at some of the stats still coming out from overseas. I believe that today there was 150,000 new infections reported globally from the WHO, which is one of the highest days so far, um, which is really just unbelievable considering that um, we're living quite easy here in Australia. I know that obviously it wasn't easy for everyone and we do have quite high unemployment at the moment, but when you put it all into perspective, it's so hard to believe that we basically have avoided a shower of bullets here. It's um, quite phenomenal. Yeah, I feel like uh, my faith in humanity is a little bit restored. So that brings us to the end of another pandemic update. I know that it seems to be getting a little bit thinner these days, but as I said, uh, that's probably a good sign for us here in Australia that we're doing so well with our public health measures. Um, If you'd like to hear more from us, please subscribe to the Medical Republic podcast on Spotify or iTunes, any podcatcher of your choice. And we'll catch you next time with our next pandemic update or one of our other great podcasts.